There's a whole lot of truth in that small video clip right there. Trying to figure out exactly what career path we're going to take in our lives or going through this whole thing. I know when I was a kid, I wanted to be a major league baseball player. Um, Baseball was was my sport growing up, and I was going to be a first baseman for the Texas Rangers. Uh, But obviously, I'm 35 years old, and I didn't just retire from major league baseball. So that didn't exactly pan out for me. But that's kind of one of the things that's beautiful about life is we go down all these different paths and we have to choose uh, which one we're going to take. And as we go through this, we kind of get to these different paths in the road where we decided we're going to take this one. We're going to go this way. Sometimes we change and we get into college and we change our majors and we do all these different crazy little things. And then we end up in one spot. At that point, especially for college graduates, today's probably one of those scary days, because today you might be faced with having to answer that question. What do I want to do when I grow up? Because you're all grown up now. There's not a next step. It's now it's time to go out into the into the real world and get a job. Or like the video said, what do you want to do with this life? And the answer, the way we answer that is unique to all of our stories, because as followers of Christ, we should all have the same ending. And that should be living to make a difference for God and for good. This is how every Christian life should end. And as we're going to look at this morning in Daniel chapter one, we're going to look at a way to prepare to make a difference for Christ, no matter what path you carve out in your own personal life or what path you've been carving out for many of years. So if you turn, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter one. As you're doing that, I want to share a story with you. One of my favorite people in the world that I can think of when you talk about somebody who had a unique pattern of failure, striving to make a difference in their life. He was born into poverty. He was faced multiple times with failures in his life. And even went through a very depressed state through his own life. But he never quit. And it was that perseverance of not quitting that made him become one of the greatest presidents of our history. And that is Abraham Lincoln. I want to give you a little sketch of Abraham Lincoln's life and his road to the White House. In 1818 is kind of where we'll start. That's when Abraham Lincoln's mother died. That's a horrible time for him in his life. After that, he failed in business. From there, he ran for state legislator and he lost. He lost his job. He wanted to go to law school, but he couldn't get in. He ran for state legislator again. This time he won. So he got engaged. He got engaged to his sweetheart. A few months later, she died. And that spun him into a state of depression and a nervous breakdown that landed him in bed for six months. He sought to become the speaker of state legislator, but he was defeated. He sought to become the elector. He was defeated. So he decided, I'm going to run for Congress. Who doesn't, right? You, get, you lose, let's just go run for Congress. Well, he lost. He ran for Congress again. This time he won. He moved to Washington and he did a great job. He ran for re-election to Congress thinking there's no way I'll lose now. He lost. He ran for Senate of the state. He lost. He was on the ballot for vice president of the United States. And from his party, he received less than 100 nominations. He ran for U.S. Senate again and he lost. I don't know about you, but I'd have given up. Luckily, Abraham Lincoln didn't. 1860, he was elected president of the United States. And as you can see, he had a very unique path to this this successful place that he ended up as the president of the United States. He could have given up, but he didn't. And that's what makes him different. That's what makes him a little bit unique. And here's the common denominator for all of us. He was living his life to make a difference. As followers of Christ, we should be living our lives in such a way that makes a difference. So if you've got your Bible, look with me in Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to look at how Daniel lived his life in a way to make a difference. And so I want to point out some biblical principles of how we can make that happen this morning. 
Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought by Babylon to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy and good looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They would be trained for three years and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. Now, if you haven't been in church all of your life or even very long, you've probably heard of these names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You probably don't know all the details of who they were, but you've at least been given those names. So let me set up a little bit of the text this morning. Let me give you um, just a, a brief run back through history so you can understand exactly what Daniel was going through during this time. The book starts off in 606 with Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, as the king. And so I want to rewind about 400 years and give you kind of a Cliff Notes version so we can understand kind of in bullet point of what was going on. If we look back 438 years, we go back to 1043 B.C. This is back when Israel was asking for a king. And they went to Samuel and they said, hey, Samuel, we want to look like everybody else. We want a king. So Samuel says, OK. And he gives them a king. And so in, uh, he, he anoints Saul as the king of Israel in 1043. Saul dies in 1011 and David takes the throne. And as if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Sean Coombs talk about David's life. And we know that at age 15 in 1019 B.C. that David was anointed as the king of Israel. But he said, you're going to have to wait a minute because you're not going to be the king now. You're going to be the king after Saul is done. So David has to sit on this, but he's anointed as the king. So years later in 1011, David becomes king. From there, Solomon is the next king of Israel. He reigns from 971 until he dies in 930. And it's at this point that things begin to go south almost literally. You see, David and Solomon had united the nations and built the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. And they completed the Lord's temple in 968 B.C. Following this in 930, when Solomon dies, there became a struggle, a political and a spiritual rebellion in the land. And this is when things go south. The the kingdom gets divided into two parts. Israel makes up the northern kingdom and Judah makes up the southern kingdom. And In 722, part of Israel fell into the Assyrians. And a few years later, the rest of Israel was taken captive by Babylon. And that's where we find Daniel in the story today. So I want to give you that just brief history so you'll know exactly what's taken place and how Daniel got here. But here's another reason why I want to do that. I want you to understand that these biblical principles that we'll walk through today are reliable, so reliable, even in captivity. Even when Daniel was held captive and had no decisions of his own, he still was able to live by these biblical principles. So as we look at these, let's discover how we can live by them today in 2013. Step number one, I'm going to give you four steps of how to live to make a difference. Step number one looks like this. Be willing to make hard choices. Be willing to make hard choices. We read in these first three verses that King Nebuchadnezzar came in and he besieged Judah. 
What this means is that the king came in, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and basically overtakes Judah, but he doesn't wipe it away. Matter of fact, he says, I'm going to take the best of the best. So he takes the best of the Hebrews and he says, you're coming with me back to Babylon. And he leaves their king in place so he can come back later and soak up the land. He even comes into the temple of God and and scripture says that God allows him to take some of the items from the temple of God and take them back to his house of his God. That's going to be important for Daniel and that we'll talk about later. So this place that Daniel's being taken, Babylon, is 700 miles away. That would be like you and I packing up our backpacks and walking from here to Omaha, Nebraska. That's 700 miles from Liberty Township, Ohio. That's a long trek. I wouldn't want to make it. I'm just going to be honest with you. I love to camp out. I'm going camping next weekend. I don't want to walk from here to Omaha, Nebraska. But here's the difference between you and me. Daniel and his buddies did not have a choice. They were captives and they had to go. They had no other choice. This was a whole new culture for Daniel and his friends. This meant a whole new religion. The Babylonians, they were polytheist pagans. And what that means is as a polytheist, polytheism is the belief in many different gods. And they were more than welcome, more than happy to welcome in other gods from other religions. That's why King Nebuchadnezzar takes some of the things from the temple and brings them to his house of his gods. But Daniel had to make some hard choices. As we read in verses four through seven, he had to learn a new language and a new literature. He was to be assigned a new diet and he was going to enter in to this new government position and even given these new names. Look back at verse four with me. It says, select only strong, healthy and good looking young men, he said. Make sure that are well versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine of his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Their Hebrew names were stripped from them, and this would have been humiliating from them. This made some hard choices for these guys to make, because they had to decide, of what point are we going to step back and go, no, that defiles God? Or at what point are they going to move forward and say, okay, I'm going to keep doing this? College graduates, as you, as you face these times, you're going to be entering uncertain times, just like Daniel and his friends were facing. Now, here's the difference between you and the rest of us. We live in these certain times on a daily basis and you're about to get thrown in head first. But here's what I want you to realize that every time you come into these these different situations, remember to strive and to honor God in those times. Take those times to say, you know what, I'm not going to sit back. I'm not going to just let the world walk all over me. I'm going to step up and stand up when I need to. This leads me to the second step of how to make a difference in this world. Be ready to have your choices tested. If you're going to make some hard choices in this world, be ready to have those tested. If you go back to verse eight, we read verse eight. We see the decision here that Daniel has to make. It says Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. So that's the decision that Daniel's having to make. I don't want to eat these things that you're making me eat. But here is where the decision gets tested. Verse nine. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and the wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youth your age, I am afraid the king will have me beheaded. 
This is the exact same pattern that you and I are dealing with with Scripture in our own lives. It's when our decisions, right before our decisions become deeply rooted convictions, they become tested, just as Daniel was facing here. And these are risks that these boys were going to have to take in Daniel chapter 1. They were either going to be very necessary to stay alive or not necessary and they could step back and do them. So not only were his, te- his decisions being tested in verse 9 and 10, we know from the whole story that we're going to look at that these would change Daniel, but they would not defile him. Look at the first one, a new Babylonian name. As the chief official gave them new names, this had to be difficult for the boys like we talked about. These were their, their Hebrew names that they were given, and now they were going to be stripped of them and be given Babylonian names. We don't get any word from the text exactly of how Daniel and how these other guys felt, but this had to be demeaning to them. Their Hebrew names had meaning because they were raised under the reform that took place under Josiah. So if we look here, we're under King Jehoiakim's reign, the son of Josiah. Now, Josiah had been given a reform. He had rediscovered and implemented the law of God as a standard for this nation. Unfortunately, his son, Jehoiakim, didn't follow in his footsteps. So even though Daniel and his friends were not living under these harsh pagan times before Josiah found God's word again, their parents would have been. So that means Daniel and his friends would have been raised under this reform. They would have been raised to understand the law of Moses. They would have been raised to understand the commands that Old Testament scriptures had given them. More than that, they would have understood that to rename something is to take position or authority over one person. It's this claim of authority that um, we see in Genesis chapter 2. Adam was placed under the authority over all the creatures in the garden, including his wife. And he gave each of them new names. So in this instance, when Daniel and his friends were given new names, the commander was expressing authority over these young men, and they were simply submitting to that civic authority. The second one was the the Babylonian education. We see that they're going to have to go to a new Babylonian school. They're going to be taught a whole new education. This was not put in place to get them to forsake their own culture or their own religion. This was simply to get them uh, get them versed up in the writings and readings of Aramaic. Aramaic was the language there in Babylon. And in order to better equip them to serve in the administration of the Babylonian king, they had to learn Aramaic. This this microphone is driving me absolutely crazy. So as polytheists, the Babylonians, they weren't threatened by the other religions. So the fact that Daniel and his friends served this other God, they weren't threatened by that. The only thing that offended polytheists was exclusionism. Basically to say, my God is the only God. There's no other God out there other than my God. Let me tell you, they'd have been threatened here at Liberty Heights Church. Amen? That was the only thing that would threaten a polytheist is to say, my God is the only God. If you look back at the story of Jonah, you read here uh, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 6, that the sailors on board of this ship, they call out to Jonah and they say, you know, call out to your own God. They said, the captain went to him talking about Jonah and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice on us and we will not perish. You see, these were young men, but they were not highly impressionable young men. They weren't going to just unquestionably accept anything they had been taught. They were well versed in the law of Moses under Josiah's reign. And they were familiar with the prophecy of Jeremiah and others that said that this would happen one day and they would have to submit to it. The third one, the new Babylonian diet. This is kind of where the risk begins to set in for Daniel and his friends. The first two changes he looks at, he says, hey, that's no big deal. I can handle it. But this is where he begins to put his foot down. We're not exactly sure why he thought that the food was defiling, only that it was and he was not going to stand for it. 
So there's more than likely two reasons why Daniel looks at this and says, OK, here's the problem I have. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar would not have hesitated to serve unclean food. And Daniel would know the law of Moses. He would know what was clean and what was unclean. And so he knew he couldn't eat this food. Secondly, these foods would have been offered as uh, as as kind of a sacrifice to pagan gods as a ritual. And they would have been offered in worship to these these other gods. And Daniel said, you know what? I can't eat these, this food that's been offered up. That's a defilement and is a danger to being disobedient to God. And that meant this was time for Daniel to make a hard choice and for it to be tested. Even under difficult circumstances, guys, these principles in our lives work. They work for Daniel and they work for his friends. Not only was he trying to obey God, but he was trying to be obedient to the civil, civic leadership that was placed in front of him. And this is the truth that I've seen played out time and time again throughout life. The truth is this. God always gives us an out in messy situations. He always gives us an out in messy situations. However, it's our responsibility to recognize that and to take it. See, Daniel, back in verse 9, he recognized the out. He recognized that this guard that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar had placed over him had affection for him, had affection over him, had, had kind of had a softened heart towards Daniel. And Daniel recognized it. And Daniel used that to get to where he needed to go. He said, hey, judge me. Use me. Let me just see. If, if I look pale and weak, then I'll eat the food. But just test me. I'm reminded back to a, a young man I used to know. I still know. Still one of, uh, he's, he's in the military now. He's in the United States Navy. And I keep up with him quite a bit. And this guy, uh, back his freshman year in high school, I was given two tickets to a Dayton Dragons baseball game. There was a guy who knew that I loved baseball. And so he was like, hey, I've got a couple tickets to a Dragons game. He had season tickets, which meant they were really good seats. And I loved it. My wife didn't want to go. So I was like, all right, I'll invite somebody. So I offered this kid a chance to go with me. I knew he was kind of at that point as a freshman in high school. He was starting to make some really stupid choices, right? He'd already gotten caught stealing a candy bar from the lunchroom and gotten caught. And this, it was just goofiness. So he was kind of heading down this wrong path. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to give him a chance. I'm going to hang out with him some and talk to him. Well, he, he declined. He ended up not going with me to this baseball game. And I was like, okay, no big deal. Well, unfortunately, he said, the, well, let, let me back up. He went out and spent some time with his friends that night and decided to go out and get, get drunk. And whenever his parents finally caught him a couple weeks later, and he and I sat down to talk, this is what he told me. He said, the minute you asked me to go to that baseball game, two Seanisms popped in my head. Number one, never put sin on your calendar. He goes, I knew I had it planned out. I knew what we were doing. We knew we were getting the alcohol. I even knew there was going to be weed there. I knew what I was getting myself into. I had sin on my calendar. And that led me to the second Seanism that popped in my head immediately. God always gives me an out. He said, I knew the minute you asked me to go to that baseball game that God was giving me an out. He goes, I saw it. He said, I just said, no, nah, I'm not going to get caught. I'm going to go on and do my own thing. Obviously, that didn't work. He got nailed. Listen, if you're going to be a person who makes a difference for God, then you've got to be ready to have your choices tested. Daniel had his choices tested. This young man in this story had his choices tested. And when those tests come... Be watching for God's protection over you. If you have your sin on the, on, the, on the calendar, then here's the greatest choice you have to decide. Are you going to trust God's principles to work in your life and remove that? Or are you going to make your own way? And you're going to do your own thing and say, you know what, I'll make my own difference in my own life. For some of you graduating college, this is kind of your chance to go out and sow your wild oats before you really have to get a full-time job. I was in that boat after high school. I, I remember it well. 
For some, it's cheating your way to the top in a business. And maybe you already have a plan on your calendar. Maybe you already know exactly how you're going to do it. For those of us, it could be deciding that we want to get into a different marriage than the one we're already in. Or we want to check out some different avenues other than the marriage that we're already committed to or supposed to be committed to. We all put sin on our calendar in different ways. But what I want you to realize this morning is that God is giving you an out right here today. God is screaming at you at the top of his lungs right now. This is your out. Would you do me a favor? Would you go home or go out of this room today and erase sin from your calendar? There's your out right there. God just handed it right to you. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're struggling with. But God is giving you an out. He's giving you a chance to say, don't cross that line. Be willing to make a difference. Be willing to make a hard choice and be willing to have a test, which leads us to our third point. Be willing to be different. You know what the world does? The world puts sin on their calendar and they just run with it all day long. Somebody who's different says, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to cancel that. I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to move on. Not only did Daniel and his friends excel in the areas in which they were being judged according to secular standards, but the Lord also blessed Daniel with spiritual discernment. Look here in verses 17 through 19. It said, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. When the trading period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. God honored them and made them different. Daniel and his friends, they were, they were people who were noticed to be different. When they were stood before all the other Hebrews, Nebuchadnezzar goes, those four guys right there, they're different. And you know what? They never defiled God in the process. How are we going to live our lives in such a way that honors God and we're different from the rest of the world? That doesn't mean everybody's going to like what you're doing. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to look at you and say, hey, you're doing a great job. When you're living in the minority of, of living in God's will, people will probably look at you and go, I'm not, I'm not sure I want to be associated with you anymore. As Christ followers, who are we trying to impress? Because we're here on this earth to impress God with the way we live our lives. And instead, we spend a lot of our time trying to impress everybody else around us. Let me tell you this. Being different, it's not the same as being weird. Being different is being set apart from the norm. It's being set apart from the rest of the world and the way the world says that we should live. What does it look like to be different? It's being more interested in integrity than advancement. It's being more interested in influencing than impressing. It's being more interested in serving than to be served. It's more interested in character than prestige. It's more interested in being faithful than successful. It's being more interested in being used by God rather than using other people to climb the ladder. In other words, you take seriously the wisdom in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, that says a good name is better than great riches. Let me tell you, when I die, I hope that people can look at me and not say that my last name, Acre, was a good name, but the name of Christ was a good name in me. And I'll die poor if I have to, but I hope that I can die with a good name. 
The final step here in preparing to make a difference is move ahead in the confidence of God's word. Move ahead in the confidence of God's word. In other words, don't just sit here, hear it, soak it in, and then do nothing with it. Move forward with it. Let me show you how even in difficult circumstances, God honors these principles by placing Daniel in a place to make a difference. Verse 20. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel went from being a person who was a captive to being a person who was of influence. He was given a Babylonian job. He was given a new job. This would seem like a major issue for Daniel, a major risk factor, but it wasn't. Why? Why did Daniel have no part of becoming a part of King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, palace when he had been a captive from King Nebuchadnezzar? Let me answer that. First of all, Daniel knew the sin of the Jews. He knew that judgment was against his people. He knew the prophecies that had been coming out from uh, Jeremiah and others. He knew that defeat was clearly in the hand of God. If you continue on and you read in chapter 2, you'll also find out that God is also the same God who raises up kings and puts them down. And Daniel understood this. He's the one who gave Judah into the hand of the Babylonians. Second, to seek out Babylon's well-being was to be obedient to God's instructions as given by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. This is what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You know, I take this passage to heart having five kids. I'm going to increase and not decrease. Amen? All right. You see, Daniel was not defiling himself by being involved in Nebuchadnezzar's government. Daniel was being obedient to God's command as given to the prophet Jeremiah. He was being obedient, saying, okay, God, I will go and do the things you've told me to do. My wife just ran out the back door whenever I said I was going to continue to increase. I don't know what that means, but would you guys pray for me right this moment? (laughs) I'm sure it was a risk to his reputation to go in and be a part of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. But Daniel was set on living in obedience to God. And that doesn't mean that everyone else around him was. I'm sure there were people who turned their noses at Daniel, who, who, who cut Daniel off. And listen, as men and women of Christ, if we're going to live our lives to be obedient to God, there's going to be others around us who are not. And there's going to be others around us who are going to decide to go the easy route. They're going to decide to, to live with sin on our calendar and continue to go down that road. But we have to decide to be different. Remember what I said earlier about this being a reform that took place under Josiah. This is what is so important here with with Daniel, because God's law was lost for a long period of time. And that's why all these pagans were going through the the history reigns here. And so when Josiah comes in, he's kind of cleaning up and cleaning out and trying to get the palace in order. And he comes across God's law. Now, I still haven't wrapped my brain around this for years. I've, I've tried to understand this. How can God's people, the people founded on God's law, lose God's law? Nobody knew what it said. Nobody knew what was written. Nobody knew how to live it. Nobody knew it was there. And Josiah brings it back. And Josiah creates a reform and says, we're going to begin to live by this. 
Josiah learned that living by God's principles works for a nation. Daniel learned that by living by God's principles as an individual, even under oppression, works. Guys, I got to tell you this morning, living under God's law works. God's word positions us to be able to make a difference out in the world. Your primary goal as a college graduate at this stage of your life is not to be successful. It's to be faithful. Which leads us to the question, faithful at what? Faithful in what? Here's an idea for you. Trusting in worldly routes to success or trusting in the wisdom of God's word and leaving the results up to him. Those are the two choices every single one of us face every single day. In Daniel's day, those were the astrologers and the magicians. Am I going to go that route? In our day, it's every strategy to success that does not honor the wisdom of God's word. There's only one way to go down this road, and it's God's word. God's word is the foundation of who we are, and it's what's going to make us make the right decisions. Let me tell you, college students, graduating, going out of the world, let me tell you one of your greatest temptations. It's going to be to move ahead in life, to climb the ladder, to get the next biggest job. It's going to be the temptation to do whatever it takes to become successful, to be popular, instead of following biblical principles when it seems like everyone else around you is getting promoted faster and further. If you don't believe me, ask your parents. Ask somebody older than you and wiser than you, is that true? And they're going to say yes. Everyone's path in this road is going to be unique. But let's commit to a common goal as followers of Christ to make famous the name of Jesus Christ by living out the principles of God's word. Let me tell you a little bit more about this baseball that I brought with me today. Um, I have a friend who took me to a baseball game last fall. He knows I'm a huge Texas Rangers fan. He lives in Cleveland. And the Rangers had a, had a three-game uh, run up in Cleveland last Labor Day. So I went up there. My family took a little vacation. And we went to the game. He took me to this game. I have never gotten a baseball in my life at any game. That's every man's dream, right? I mean, can I just be honest? I'm the nerd who walks in with a baseball glove. I am. I'm that guy. Shoot me. I'm the, that's me. But you know what? You know what I'm holding now? Nelson Cruz home run ball. Nelson Cruz. I did not buy this ball. Nobody gave me this ball. I earned this ball at a baseball game. So let me set the story up for you, right? Because I, I get giddy when you hear about this. My buddy and I are walking around the park and we get out to left field. If you've ever been to Cleveland, to the Indians, you know how left field is just a big patio where you can stand there right on the wall. And so we're standing there on the wall. There's nobody there. And I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a boring game. I'll get into that here in a minute. And Nelson Cruz is up to bat. Nelson Cruz kind of lets one go by. He fouls one off this way, fouls one off that way. And then it happens. The crack of the bat. I mean, this is like, just by the crack of the bat, you knew this one was going yard. And it's coming right at me. Right at me. And it's a laser. I'll be nervous. I'll be honest, I was nervous. So I step back about two steps and I take my hat off because I'm thinking I'm not going to let this hit my ring and knock my finger off or kill me or whatever. So I take my hat off and I realize I'm wearing a visor. I'm an idiot, right? So I put the visor back on my head and it's coming. I mean, it's literally coming right at my head. And I have to make a decision. And I made a decision. Duck. And I got out of the way. I'm not kidding. That ball was an absolute laser. Now, my buddy, Dane, he's a good friend because he was standing behind me. And when that ball came in, he knocked it down. 
And when he knocked the ball down, it bounced right back in front of him. And I watched the ball come bouncing right in front of me, and it hits the fence right in front of me. And here comes this jack wagon trying to get the ball. I gave him a little one of those right there. I got the ball. Man, I got a Texas Rangers hat on. Get away from me, right? Nelson Cruz home run ball. It was amazing. I'll never forget it. I posted pictures on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook about my baseball. I was going crazy. I mean, it's like, am I awake? Am I, what is go- I've got a Nelson Cruz home run ball. It was awesome. Let me tell you a little bit about baseball, how it works. I brought my home plate right here, if you can see it. Next time you're watching the news or ESPN and you see somebody hit a home run, I want you to watch the guy behind the plate. I want you to watch the umpire. Because what he'll do is he'll walk out from home plate and he'll stand up here somewhere. And he'll kind of watch, make sure they touch all the bases. But then he stares at home plate. And as that guy comes running down the third baseline, he'll make sure they hit home plate. You know why? Because that run doesn't count until he hits home plate. Let me tell you the rest of this story. I told you the absolute truth of this story, but there's some stuff I left out that are pretty important. The Rangers lost that game one to zero. And you're going, if you're holding Nelson Cruz home run ball, how in the world did the Rangers lose that ball game one to zero? See, this isn't as famous as people want to think it is because it's got a stamp on the back of it and it says batting practice. I got this home run ball during batting practice. Now, it was still Nelson Cruz. It was still a home run. It was still a laser about to my head off. But it didn't count. Church, listen to me. All too often we come and we sit in this room. We open our Bible. We take notes and we do all these different things. But then we walk out of these doors and we don't make a difference. It's like we're hitting a home run in batting practice. I got news for you. If you hit a home run in the game and you go sit in the dugout, that that run doesn't count. You've got to touch all the bases. Church, let me encourage you this morning. Don't be one of those Christians who comes into the church and knows everything about Scripture and hits a home run, but goes and sits on the bench. Comes and sits in in the nice, comfortable seats and never goes out to make a difference with their life. Because that's as worthless as this baseball. I couldn't sell this thing for a dime because it means nothing because of the stamp it's got on the back. Don't live in such a way where you get a stamp on your back that says, I'm just on the bench. I'm not here to make a difference. Would you bow your heads and pray with me for a minute?